Hello and welcome to the Money Bear Podcast. I am so excited to launch this. My name's Chloe. I'm better known as Chloe Bear Money Coach on the internet. And I have probably been thinking about starting a podcast for like two to three years, but definitely within the last year when Chloe Bear Money Coach was started and my following started asking like, when are you going to start a podcast? When are you going to do it? And I was just like, guys, I literally have no time. It's not possible. It's just not going to happen. And finally this year, I just decided, you know what? Let's do it. And so like so many other things that I've done in the past, I just decided to launch it. And I was like, you know what? I will figure out the rest later. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this, but let's do it. And let's figure out the rest later, kind of like the rest of my life has unfolded as well. So anyway, welcome. I am so excited to have you guys here. This is the first episode of the Money Bear podcast, and I could not be more excited. So first, who the heck am I? Why am I here? What are we talking about? So if you guys already follow me on Instagram or TikTok, you probably already know who I am. I am a money coach. I am the founder of the Lazy Investors course. And really my mission is to make the taboo topic of money way more accessible. And specifically, at least on TikTok and Instagram, I really focus on providing education that is accessible and not scary and even fun around investing. So the Money Bear podcast is going to be pretty much the same thing. It's going to be bare. It's going to be vulnerable. It's going to be honest. And we're going to talk about money, but we're going to do it in a way that a real human being can understand. Because I remember when I was starting my journey in learning about personal finance, and I remember waiting to learn about investing specifically, because every time I looked at investing content, I'd be like, wow, this is written as if I'm already supposed to know a bunch of things about investing. And I'm reading this article because I don't know anything about investing. And it made me feel stupid. It made me feel like this was not accessible, like it wasn't for me. And so that's why I do what I do. I try to break it down in a way that you don't need a PhD in finance in order to understand what I'm saying. And you know, we take the shame out of it, we take the judgment out of it, and we really just get down to the root of this is a tool, money is a tool, investing is a tool, and we do it in order to secure our own financial futures. It's something that every single one of us is gonna have to learn how to do at some point or another. And so why not do it now? And why not do it in a way that's easy, fun, accessible, and you know maybe not as boring as you would expect a topic like finance to be. So that's kind of who I am and my mission. Like I said, I'm the founder of the Lazy Investors course, where I focus on that. I focus on providing investing education in a way that does not require a lot of time. It's just basically about setting up a system that works for you so that you don't have to and not having to, you know, manage your money, constantly being paying attention to what the market is doing and all that good stuff. That's exactly what the Lazy Investor is all about. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about on this podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different today. Since my whole goal of the podcast is to be vulnerable, be real, be honest, and share people's money stories, obviously I have to share my money story before we can even do any of that cool stuff. But over the next couple of episodes, we've already got lined up for you guys. You'll hear from experts, whether it's about paying off debt or whether it's going from foster care to Wall Street. We've got some amazing stories from some amazing human beings that I cannot wait to share with you. And we're going to teach you about stuff. 
as we go as well. We're going to talk about investing, talk about debt payoff, talk about budgeting and all of those things in a way that's easy and accessible for you to understand while you're like washing the dishes or something. So I'm super stoked to be here. I cannot wait for you guys to get to experience this community. And if you're listening and you've made it this far, almost five minutes in, I want to ask of you guys to go ahead and subscribe and to leave me a review and rate it. It honestly means so much, especially in the early stages of the podcast. So if you could just take a second to go and do that for me, I truly and completely appreciate the crap out of you. So thanks. And let's get to the episode, shall we? Okay. I gotta say, I started this podcast episode at least five times and deleted it each time because I was like, no, that's not right. You're rambling. No, not that. No, don't share that. Don't approach it this way. And I finally sat down and was like, all right, let's give an outline because I don't want to ramble on and on and on because talking about my money story feels like such a big thing because there's been so much in my past that I feel like is relevant to my view of money and how I kind of developed the views that I had. So I figure let's just kind of start from the beginning because we all know that childhood really impacts the way that we view money and we view, you know, our potential or opportunity to not only make money, but build wealth as well. Hello, money bears. I do want to give you guys a quick trigger warning. If you are sensitive to topics regarding mental health, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and suicide, please skip this episode. We talk about briefly each one of those things. So just want to give you guys a heads up before you dive in. Growing up, I was one of five children. My mom had five kids in seven years, so we were a very close bunch and a probably chaotic bunch as well, but money was always really tight. My parents kind of started having children pretty young. I believe by the time they were 23, they had already had two or three kids. And like now I can't even imagine having two or three kids at the age of 23. I'm 31 now and I can't even imagine having two or three kids. But you know, they were not making a lot of money back then. My mom was still in college. She was finishing up nursing school. And my dad was working an entry-level engineering job. And money was really tight. My mom was like a cocktail waitress and just kind of like scraping things together to get by. My earliest memories of money in the house was always shrouded in stress. I can remember from like the earliest age, I want to say like, I can remember back to like being seven or eight and hearing my parents stress about money and like dealing with credit cards and not being sure how they were going to afford X, Y, Z. And, you know, it was one of those things that I was super in tune to as the oldest daughter, because I was kind of like my mom's best friend, her best buddy. And a lot of the times the stresses, you know, she'd talk about it and driving us to daycare, or she'd talk about it, you know, on the way home from school and things like that. So I just kind of like absorbed this information and was like, okay, money is stressful. When you don't have money, it's even more stressful. And what I specifically remember is even though things were tight, sometimes that didn't necessarily stop my family from spending because you know how hard it can be to just restrict, restrict, restrict until like you get to the point where you're like, okay, I cannot restrict anymore. I have to go spend. And then you have this like spending splurge and then you enter the cycle again. You're back in the credit card debt cycle where it's just like, how the heck are we going to pay off these credit cards? And then you restrict and you restrict and you restrict and you're stressed out. And then eventually just like dieting or anything else, 
you explode and you're like, okay, let's just explode for a second. And then we'll pull it back in and do that all over again. So that was kind of my parents' money cycle in my youth is we were always just kind of like one step behind and never really felt like we could get ahead. I don't remember any point in my childhood where like money was plentiful and money was not an issue and money was not a cause of stress. Well, I will say I want to recognize my privilege in the situation as well. Like, yes, there were five kids, but we grew up in a very like upper middle class neighborhood in the middle of nowhere, Illinois. We went to really good schools. My parents lived in an area that had really high property taxes. They owned their home and they were able to make things work. So we never had to worry about like keeping the lights on or dealing with anything like that. So I do want to recognize my privilege there, but we were constantly stressed and constantly struggling. And it was just like, there were things that we couldn't have that, especially with us living in an area that was particularly well off we weren't well off, you know, we would go into school and see these things that all these other kids have like new cars and like a new wardrobe every year and all of these things. And like, it was very obvious we didn't have those things. But again, like I never had to worry about the lights going off or anything along those lines. So what I will say is that because I saw the stress that dealing with not having money caused both in my parents' relationship and just like in the household vibe in general, I started working as soon as humanly possible. In fact, I started working, I want to say by the time I was like seven or eight, doing concession stands for like the soccer games. So they'd have kids go into the concession stands. There's this little shack on the like in between the soccer fields and me and my best friend Alicia at the time we both had like the same work schedule and we would go in there and they would always tell us like okay you can eat five dollars worth of snacks and <laughs> that was like the jackpot for me so like five dollars of snacks I'd always be like okay so that's like five candy bars or that's like a hot dog and some popcorn and two candy bars and like I think I would always eat over the five dollar allotment that we were given but I specifically remember that and I know we got paid too I think we got paid between three to five dollars an hour plus that five dollars of like you can eat whatever you want and that's probably when one of my eating disorders began as well <laughs> But even if I wasn't doing concession stands, by the time I was 11, I was babysitting for other families, making like $3 an hour. That was also the time when I decided I never wanted to have kids because kids were stressful. And I also started doing things like refereeing for basketball games or umpiring for softball games. That was very short-lived. I was not good at umpiring for softball games but I did a little bit of that as well. And then by the time I was 15 or 16, I started working at a coffee shop and then I got my dream job as a 16 year old and I was able to get a job at Barnes and Noble. And I worked at Barnes and Noble on and off from 16 to 22. And, you know, I'm the type of person who I've always had multiple jobs. So like I was refereeing and doing concessions. I was working at the coffee shop and Barnes and Noble. I was working at Barnes and Noble and trying out waitressing and things like that. But you would think with me and this desire to earn money, I would have also had a desire to save money, but I didn't. Money burned a hole in my pocket. And all of those years of working from the time I was like eight or nine, all the way until, you know, I graduated from college, I really didn't have much to show from it because my experiences with money was like, I just spent it. It couldn't sit in my pocket for too long because I had the urge to buy random shit. And 
it kind of went like that on and off throughout the years. But when I look back on my life and I look back on my relationship with money, a lot of the times my relationship with money would go from one extreme to the other. So one of the things I got really good at was saving for a specific goal. So for example, I remember when I studied abroad in college, I studied abroad in Spain, my junior year of college. And leading up to that, I was able to save $7,000, which was a ton of money at the time. And I remember like boyfriends at the time joking about how I was Miss Money Bags and how I never spent money. And I was kind of like a Scrooge, but I just had this like lifelong desire to study abroad in Spain. And I was like, literally had my blinders on, there was no way I wasn't going to save a crap ton of money in order to like enjoy my experience to the fullest. But when I was in Spain, instead of using that money for like amazing experiences, like traveling around to all these different countries, I bought some of the stupidest shit. I would go to the store every day to buy new clothes. I mean, I spent so much money on drinking and food and like knickknacks and buying everyone gifts. I just wasted so much money and it wasn't stuff that was like really bringing me value. When I look back at it now, I remember feeling like I couldn't afford to go on all these weekend trips that everybody was going on because, you know, there were a lot of people from the East Coast who were born into old money and did not have to worry about paying for anything. And then I was really protective of that $7,000 because I was like, you know, I spent so much time saving up for this, but instead of me protecting that or using it for high value things, I just ended up blowing it on stupid shit. And I will say I went on a few vacations or a few travel adventures while I was studying abroad there. Like I remember going to Ireland. I remember going to Amsterdam and I remember going to Barcelona But for the most part, I just stayed in Sevilla because I felt like I couldn't afford it because I was just blowing the money on stuff that I didn't actually care about. And I remember just like wondering how people who had saved a fraction of what I had saved could go on a weekend trip every single weekend. And it was just because they were being intentional with their money, but I wasn't. And I didn't really understand that at the time. So that gave me a lot of anxiety and it made me feel like I had failed somehow. Like I had done all the hard work of saving up all that money, but it really wasn't working out for me in the way that I thought it was going to. So that started that process. And then when I came home from Spain and I was a senior in college, by the time I got back, I then began one of the hardest stages of my life. So when I got back from Spain, it was 2011. It was my last year of college because I graduated college a semester early. I fell into one of the worst depressions I've ever experienced. So the depression started when I got back from Spain because I had been so happy in Spain, like so happy. I don't even know the last time I was that happy. (laughs) And when I got back to Iowa, It was winter, so it was cold and gross and gray, and I just felt like the world was not as shiny and as new as it was because my big adventure that I'd been waiting for my whole life was over, and now I had to face reality of graduating during a recession, having an English degree and having a Spanish degree, and not entirely sure how I wanted to use it. My kind of plan was to graduate college and teach English in Spain, but I found out very quickly that in order to teach English in Spain when I graduated college in 2012, I was going to have to pay several hundred euros for a program that would like help me find a placement and then they would pay me a stipend of 700 euros 
So I very quickly realized that me teaching in Spain was not going to be very feasible because in Spain, they prefer bringing in teachers who live in the UK because it's a lot cheaper. And in order for me to go over there as an American, I would have had to spend thousands of euros on a program just to get in to get the visa. And then they would have paid me like a 700 euro a month stipend, which was not even going to cover my student loans. So I quickly realized that there was no way that that was going to be an option for me unless I wanted to just go further and further into debt or take up some side gigs or things like that. But that realization, I think, sent me further into my depression. And then I had to start thinking of, okay, well, if the whole reason I went to college was to, you know, be able to graduate and teach English in Spain, and I can't do that now, well, what the heck have I done? I'm $80,000 in debt or going to be $80,000 in debt for a degree that is useless. And I don't want to teach, like I didn't want to teach in the United States. And I don't want to be a technical writer. I don't want to be a copywriter. Like, what the actual heck am I going to do? And so that realization started to really weigh on me my senior year. And I started just kind of thinking of like alternative paths and things that I could do. But trying to figure that out while dealing with this depression that just started to get worse and worse and worse the longer I stayed at the University of Iowa eventually I became pretty immobile, pretty paralyzed by the depression I was experiencing. There was at one point where my depression was at its all-time worst, and it was relatively soon after I didn't get into the program. The whole reason I went to the University of Iowa was to get into the writing program. The University of Iowa is known for their amazing writing program, and I didn't get in. And the entire reason that I decided to go to the University of Iowa was for this program. And keep in mind, the University of Iowa was an out-of-state program. So I was paying extra for a program I didn't even get into. And so that, oh my gosh, if I felt stupid after spending $7,000 in three months, realizing that I had wasted $80,000 to go to a college for the sole purpose of getting into this program and I didn't even get in, oh my gosh, my ego was crushed. And I had a very big ego at that point. I had the, you know, the ego that we have when we're 20 years old and know nothing about the world. And I felt all of my dreams just crashing down and realizing, wow, I am approaching college graduation with no idea what I'm going to do. And everything I thought my life was going to be this awesome life where I get to travel the world and live in Europe and live in Spain and, you know, become a writer and do all of these things, it's not going to happen. And I couldn't see any way that it could ever happen. And so into depression, I went when I found out that I didn't get into the writing program, I decided, you know what, if I'm not going to get into the writing program, I'm going to graduate early because fuck this shit. <laughs> and so then not only did I have debilitating depression that caused me to sleep 13 to 16 hours a day and caused me to skip classes and caused me to find dopamine hits anywhere I could get, I also started taking a lot of extra classes. So there were semesters where I had 18 semester hours. There was one semester where I didn't finish my summer course. So I had to like have it carry over into the fall course. 
And that summer or that fall, I had 24 semester hours and it was incredibly difficult, especially while trying to complete this stuff while dealing with the level of depression that I had. I remember wanting to commit suicide every single day. I remember constantly walking to class and watching the buses go by and just think like, I could just end it all. I could literally just walk in front of this bus. And even if it wasn't from the perspective of, you know, I want to kill myself, it would be from the perspective of, at least if I got hit by a bus, maybe I could just hurt myself really bad. And then I could stay in a hospital for a while. No one would expect me to do anything. And I could just sleep for a while, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. It was that bad. And what made it even worse is I remember going into the free counselor where you can get like free counseling. And I go in and I explain why I'm depressed and I explain what's going on and I tell them all about it. And they tell me, well, you know, we might need to recommend you to somebody else because we don't really deal with this kind of thing. And I was like, what do you mean this kind of thing? They very politely told me that we deal with solvable problems and your problem sounds more like something that's going to take some time to work through. We deal with like roommate disagreements. We don't deal with ongoing depression. Here's a referral to essentially a grad school program where you'll get to get very discounted, like $15 a session counseling from a graduate student. <laughs> and I remember leaving, I was just like, okay, well, thank you. I will take the card and I'll figure this out and I'll get on the list to get into this counseling or to get into this therapy. And I remember calling one of my oldest friends and calling her and be like, get this. I'm too fucked up to get the free counseling that my school offers. And really, is it free considering I'm paying for it out of my tuition? And we had a pretty good laugh about that. But anyway, that's where I was at. And so you're probably wondering, okay, Chloe, you've talked a lot about depression today, but how does this relate back to money? And for me, the way that it related to money is that I did anything I could during that time to get a dopamine hit. And like, I'm talking about anything. I became a binge drinker during that time. I developed a much worse binge eating disorder. I would go shopping like it was my job. I had never been a big shopper, but in college when this depression hit as hard as it did, every single weekend I would go to this little thrift store or consignment shop called Revival in downtown Iowa City. And I would take the clothes that no longer fit me because of my binge eating and my binge drinking. And I would go in, I would exchange those clothes that I had in community college I had bought when I worked at the Buckle. I'd take all those buckle clothes and I would take them into revival. I would sell them for a fraction of what I bought them with. And then I would use the money that I had received from the clothes that I sold to buy more clothes that would maybe fit me better. And it was one of those things where it was like, I think when we're in that place, buying something can sometimes seem like some kind of a solution. Like I felt like crap about myself. So if I could buy something that made me feel good when I was wearing it, maybe this would help. Maybe I will feel better. And of course, it doesn't really work that way. Instead, I would always end up spending more than what I sold 
and I would just slowly drip away my savings that was really only funded by the extra student loans that I took out to live off of. And of course, it didn't stop there. So not only every weekend was I eating and drinking out and shopping, I also got to the point where I was like, okay, I have this extra money from my student loans to live off of. I'm going to adopt a dog. And I was on Craigslist one day, just looking through the, you know, dog seeking home or whatever the section is on Craigslist. And I came across this dog that the title was something like, if we don't find this dog a home, we're going to have to euthanize him. And so immediately I was like, please don't do that. I will come get this dog. Like whatever you do, that's like not an option. So I show up, I borrow my roommate's car, I show up and I get this dog and take it home. And this dog has so many behavioral problems. He is kind of a puppy. And so he's chewing on everything. He's not totally trained when it comes to walking or when it comes to being potty trained. And so immediately imagine this 22 year old who's suicidally depressed, not even 22, he was 21. This suicidal 21 year old who cannot even get out of bed to shower or go to class, who is sleeping 16 hours a day thinks the solution to my problems is getting a dog (laughs) and a dog with behavioral issues at that. And so I very quickly, I think it took me a week to realize I was very ill-equipped to have a dog. And so I found him another home, but that wasn't until I had already spent a thousand dollars of the $2,000 that I had in my savings account to essentially buy a bunch of toys to get him to stop biting all the time and to get him to stop the bad behaviors. I think it was like two days after I bought all of those toys I found him a new home and I gave them all the toys. I didn't even think to like go return them or anything like that. And so, (laughs) oh, like it pains me to even talk about it because I just want to go back and rescue her. I just want to like take her out of the situation she was in. I want to give her a pep talk. I want to like tell her all the things that will make it better. And I want to tell her that like things will actually get better. And someday she's not going to want to off herself every waking hour of the day. And like, it does get better. But of course, it didn't end at the dog. So I found the dog a new home, Harley. I had named him Harley. And I'm pretty sure the new owners gave him another name. But then I thought, you know what I should get instead? A bunny. (laughs) And so I don't even ask my roommate if she's okay with this. I take her car. I go to the PetSmart. I buy a freaking bunny and everything that, like, with the remaining $1,000 in my bank account. And I buy a bunny. And the bunny, adorable, but I couldn't figure out how to potty train this bunny. So this bunny would litter all over my bedroom. And keep in mind, again, I was a very depressed person. So not only would this bunny litter all over the bedroom, but it was in a bedroom that I already was not taking care of because I couldn't take care of myself. So it was kind of something out of a horror story by the time I finally left the University of Iowa in December 2012. And I'll never forget my dad, who was like 50 at the time, coming and, you know, helping me move. And I was in such a bad state at that point. I probably hadn't showered in three days. I had this bunny who was pooping all over my room and I had no money. I had no plan. 
I mean, it was just bad. It was really, really bad. And during that time in between graduation and getting the bunny, there were so many times where I didn't know how the heck I was going to pay rent. I'd like go donate plasma. I'd try to sell a piece of art. I would panic essentially over how the heck I was going to pay rent. And that's while in that 24 semester hour semester, I had two jobs. I worked at a grocery store and I also worked at like a center for advanced studies. So despite being cripplingly, paralyzingly depressed, I was a very high functioning, crippling, depressed person and was able to, you know, still somehow maintain two jobs. And yet even with two jobs, those two jobs were really just funding my ability to like eat out and drink and you know, buy new clothes. And there were many times where I'd bounce checks or just had to figure out like creative ways to pay rent. And, you know, the stress of that alone kept me in this anxious, anxious cycle because I spent money to feel better. But as soon as I spent money, I felt like ass because it was like, well, now what? And for me, I thought, you know, like, you just need to work on your self control, you need to do things differently, you need to like, stop allowing this to happen. But I was mentally incapable. I might have even been physically incapable as well. So that was my senior year of college. It was one of the worst years of my life. And when I got home, I dealt with a lot of depression for probably another six months. And eventually, and like, again, I want to recognize my privilege. I had the privilege of going home. I had the option to move in with my parents. My parents were happy to take me back, even in the really bad state that I was in, you know, I was able to go back. And so that I think saved my life, going back and having some stability and being able to be around people who loved me no matter what, even though I was kind of a nightmare to be around. But I started by just kind of collecting myself. And I remember trying to find a therapist when I was back in my hometown. And I didn't really succeed at finding a therapist because I had convinced myself that I had borderline personality disorder, which now I don't think I have. I think I was probably struggling with just depression in general and anxiety. But anyway, I went in to this therapist and I was like, yeah, I think I have borderline personality disorder. And they were like, well, that's personality disorder. There's not a whole lot I can do about it. And so I was like, okay, then never mind. And the thing that I think actually ended up turning things around for me is that I met someone, I started dating them, and this person just gave me so much unconditional love. I was such a hot mess. I was angry all the time. I had attitude. I was obnoxious, but I was just most above all depressed and disappointed with how I thought my life had turned out. At 22 years old, I had convinced myself that I had ruined my life, that there was no way that I could ever possibly live the life of my dreams because I had put myself... $80,000 plus in debt for a degree I didn't want and didn't know how to use. And so with that, it was just kind of like, wow, I have to accept the fact that my life is not going to be as exciting as I thought it was going to be. And that devastated me. I grew up 
thinking I was special. I grew up thinking like I was going to do something great and I was going to change the world and I was going to, you know, do this, this. I had so much passion and excitement for life growing up. And at 22, I felt like I had made all of the wrong steps and it was just ripped away from me. And that was what I deserved for some reason. And so when I met Brad, Brad was the person that I dated when I was 22 to 23. And he kind of saved my life. You know, being home definitely helped having that stability, but like I wasn't getting along with my parents because, you know, I blamed them for my state of being for some reason. And Brad just loved me. He loved me so much. And he helped me through a really hard time. And at the time when I started dating him, I had gained like 50 pounds in college and was at my largest and wasn't feeling good about myself. And he thought I was amazing. And through that, I was able to start like believing that maybe I wasn't a piece of crap and maybe I could change things around and maybe I could take some steps in the right direction to get me a little closer to a life that resembled the life I thought I was going to have. And so slowly but surely, I started taking care of myself. I started going to the gym and going for walks. I started eating right. I started just not drinking so much. I started doing these little things that started to like bring my health back. And slowly over time, I became the person I used to be. I became the Chloe that I could recognize. And as that happened, you know, I, like I said, at the time I was still working at Barnes and Noble and I was also working a job with a realtor serving as like her realtor assistant. But a couple months after dating Brad, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to get a job. Like I'm going to get a regular job and I'm not going to focus on it being this cool job. I'm just going to find something that pays me more than minimum wage. And so I started working as an account manager at an ATM company that I freaking hated. It was awful, but it taught me some really important stuff. I remember trying to quit that job at the ATM company about two weeks into it. And I went, it was so bad because it was basically glorified customer service, but people would be so angry with me for not knowing certain things. And I was expected to just like do a million different things without having ever had to prioritize anything. And I remember going into my boss's office like a week after she hired me, maybe two weeks after she hired me and just started crying and was saying, I can't work here. I can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. And she started crying. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, you're not supposed to cry. This is not how this is supposed to work. And I felt bad. I felt bad for making her cry. And she goes, what do I need to do to make you stay? Knowing what I know now, I wish I had asked for more money. I don't know why. And I was making like $14 an hour in 2012 and with two college degrees. And I just said, I need you to sit with me every single day and tell me what my number one priority is. Because this huge list of random shit I have to do, I have no idea how to prioritize it. And she said, okay. So every morning for probably two or three months, I would start the morning by sitting with my boss, drinking a coffee with her and talking about like, here's my list of things to do. Which one of these is my top priority? And you know what? That taught me how to prioritize things. That taught me that 
when I'm feeling overwhelmed, that's exactly what I need to do. I need to look at my list of to-do things and be like, this one thing, I have to get this done. That is non-negotiable. I have to get this done in order for me to like continue on to the next thing. But anyway, in that job is when things started to change. Not only with this ability of like building my confidence, that job helped me rebuild some confidence where when I did accomplish that one thing and moved on to the next thing, I felt good about myself. I felt like, okay, I can handle more than what I thought I could handle. And combining that with dating Brad, who was just this energy of support, I started to like become myself again and become a stronger version of myself. And eventually when I had had enough working at the ATM company, probably six months in, I was talking to my mom. And at this point I had become a much healthier person, both physically and mentally. I remember just being like, I need some adventure. I need something like this is not how I thought my life was going to turn out. I didn't think I'd be sitting in a dark office every day, just like, you know, taking phone calls and, you know, living the cubicle life. And she's like, why don't you just go teach English somewhere? She's like, it doesn't have to be Spain. It could be China. It could be Korea. It could be Japan. Why don't you just look into it? My mom's saying that to me. It's like it gave me permission to figure out how to do it. And so from that moment where my mom and I had that conversation, I started saving as much money as humanly possible to basically, again, save up for this. So notice a pattern here. I could save up money if there was this big goal in mind. That was the only way I knew how. It was like, there's this big thing that I'm really excited about and that will allow me to save some money. So I started hoarding away money like ridiculously for six months and I was able to save, I want to say I saved like 10 grand in that time. And I started applying to these teaching positions and I decided specifically to apply to China because I was like, well, I already know English and Spanish, two of the largest languages in the world, if I learned Mandarin, then I'd be able to speak to most people in the world. And so I applied, I got in, and then I had my departure date. And, you know, the relationship obviously ended, but I took off and I took off as a completely different person than I was when I left college. So in about a year, I was really able to go from debilitating depression to kind of taking control of my life again and believing in myself again. And then enter the China years. Are you guys getting bored yet? Because this is a lot. <laughs> I'm telling you my life story. But then the China years happened. So probably one of the happiest times of my life was when I was in Spain. And the second happiest time in my life was my first couple of months in Cambodia and China. So I went to Cambodia in January 2014. And I spent a month there learning how to be an English teacher, like a TOEFL teacher getting my TESOL certification. I don't know if I've ever been happier. I was super frugal. I like refused to spend money on anything if I didn't need to, because I knew I needed to make that 10 grand last in case anything happened. That was like my emergency fund. And so again, I don't have an in-between. I only had the spend all of my money or hoard all my money. And when I was in Cambodia and China, 
I was still in the hoard all my money situation because I did not want to end up back in the same situation that I was in when I was in college. And so I remember people commenting on the fact that I never went out. I never drank. I never spent money. And they were like, did you not have that much money? Like, did you not save up that much money for this trip? And I'm like, no, I saved up like $10,000, which was more than most people had saved for that trip but I just was so scared of losing it. And because I was so scared of losing it, even though I was happier than I had ever been, I didn't get to fully experience it. I didn't get to fully experience Cambodia. I didn't get to fully experience or make friends. I just kind of like kept myself and like hoarded all this money because I was so afraid of losing it. I was so afraid of being in another place where I would have to have panic attacks on how I was going to pay for something. And I certainly didn't want to have those panic attacks while in China and, you know, not necessarily sure how I was going to get home or things like that. And I remember one of the teachers, there was one night like towards the end where I did go out and he was like, how old are you? And I was like, oh, I'm 23. He's like, you act like somebody a decade older than you are. You need to have more fun. You need to stop taking yourself so seriously. But I really hadn't learned how to trust myself at that point. I was so scared, not only that I was going to go off the rails in terms of my spending, but I was also so scared that I was going to go off the rails in terms of just like self-control. And like, to me, when I was depressed, I kind of equated it to not having any self-control of not being able to like control the things that I needed to do in order to do it. And so this version of Chloe, Cambodia, Chloe was like, had such a tight fist on everything because she was so afraid of going back to the place where I had no control over anything, where I was so, so, so depressed that I could not function other than going to work and sometimes attending class. So anyway, once Cambodia was over, I moved to Wuhan, China, and it was before the pandemic, obviously. I ended up in Wuhan, China in February 2014, and I still very much had that anxiety around money where it was like, I'm so afraid to spend this and then be screwed in China. (laughs) So I didn't do a lot of things that you would have think that I would have done. You know, I was making a good salary, enough to pay for my student loans, enough to save, enough to pay for things because they paid for my apartment, they paid for my flight home, they paid for everything. So the money I had was really expendable income other than like saving money for my student loans and whatnot. But like I lived a good life and you would think as somebody who's living in China, I would have taken the weekends to explore and like travel around to different cities in China, but I didn't. And the reason I didn't until my second year, because my job required me to do that is because I was so scared of losing all my money. And so it just goes to show you, even though I got really good at saving and hoarding money, I never learned how to manage it. So Instead, I just constantly had the scarcity mindset of like, it's all going to disappear and then I'm going to be totally fucked. And that freaked me out enough to just like not do But I was happy, I will say. I had so much happiness in the first couple of months in China because I just kind of felt like all of my life experiences had led me to that point. And finally it made sense why everything else didn't work out. And like, I felt like this is my purpose. This is like what I was meant to do. And like, I'm built for this. I'm such a good teacher. Like this is the best. It was the best. It didn't feel like work. It felt like just this grand adventure. And then I met somebody who completely changed my life in a negative way. So about, gosh, maybe two or three weeks into living in China, 
I met someone who I ended up getting into a relationship with who I definitely shouldn't have gotten into a relationship with, but I was so young and naive and was so drawn to this person and they knew it. I couldn't help myself. The way I felt around this person was something I don't think I've ever felt again. And it was this level of connection that just made me feel seen. It made me feel safe. It made me feel understood. And like as somebody who had spent so much time not feeling that way and never feeling like I totally fit in, he was just like this gift of somebody understanding this person. I'd felt like I had never been fully understood until I was with this person. And, you know, the person I am now is a very different person, certainly wouldn't be that way now. But at the time, it just felt like I had met my soulmate. And with it being an expat community in China, if you're an expat, you probably know this. But as an expat, you get super, super close to your community super, super quickly, because we understand what each other is going through. It's kind of like your expat community is your family, it's everything. And so he and I, got incredibly close incredibly quickly and we ended up engaged about two or three months after we started dating actually I think it was four months after we started dating and that's when everything went to shit so almost immediately after we got engaged he started having paranoid delusions that I was a demon and the demon had killed his angel that was also me. And so he believed that in order to get his angel back, aka me, he'd have to kill the demon, aka me, in order to rescue his angel. And I remember when the delusions first started, thinking that him saying that he believed he was God and him saying that he could control people's minds and him saying that he was the next prophet or whatever. I remember thinking that it was because he hadn't had enough sleep. He was the type of person who would get obsessed with his work and would literally go days without end working on like his music or whatever and just not sleeping instead. And so I remember thinking like, okay, these delusions are just happening because he's not sleeping. All he needs to do is get some sleep and then he'll be my person again. He'll come back. You know, he won't be this delusional human being. This is something that I have struggled with most of my life and not as much anymore. But I was really good at taking on projects. And to me, any time that he would have this like break with reality, I would just think, he was meant to be with me because I can handle this. I am strong enough to handle this. And it sure is a good thing we are together because if he wasn't with me, he'd probably end up in a hospital. And it it makes me so sad that that was my thought process because like the amount of pressure I put on myself to save this person is insane. But also the fact that I took so much responsibility for him when honestly he probably should have been in a hospital a lot sooner than he ended up in a hospital. It makes me feel a little guilty. Like it makes me feel like it was my fault what happened and what happened. And I know it's not my fault now, but what happened is he ended up having several breaks with reality and eventually got so bad that we had to have the police essentially 
take him to a hospital, but they didn't take him to a hospital until he had gone missing. And the time that he went missing for the longest, he was missing for like 12 hours and we couldn't find him. He had turned off his cell phone and the cell phone had died. And eventually his employer, because when you go to China, your visa gets tied to your employer. His employer ended up getting contacted by the police two hours away from where we lived. And he was like, he's drunk. And I was like, well, he doesn't drink. So he's definitely not drunk. But he had been mumbling that he had been battling demons all day to try and get back to his angel. And that for a while he was Jesus. And because he was Jesus, he gave away the shirt off of his back. He gave away his new laptop. He gave away his scooter, like the a motorbike. He gave away his wallet. He gave away his cell phone. He gave away all of these things because he had believed like he was on his way to salvation and saving his angel. And then when we found him and when we got him, you know, this was like 12 hours of me freaking out and worrying about what had happened to him. I remember when we got him, he looked at me and he was like, am I dead? And I just remember saying to him like, well, not yet, but if you keep doing shit like this, you might. And they sent me home with him. And it was just me and him in his apartment after he had gone missing for those 12 hours and had these paranoid delusions that he was God. They're just like, good luck. And so I just kept telling him like, you just need to go to sleep. You'll feel better if you go to sleep. You need to get some sleep. And so eventually we laid down and I kept trying to stay awake as long as possible because I didn't want him to leave again. But I was so exhausted. I eventually fell asleep. And when I woke up, he was gone again. And I started to panic and started to call his boss to be like, have you heard from him? He's gone again. I need you to come over. And I called him and she started to come over. And a few minutes later, there was a knock on the door and I opened it up and thank God it was him. And I opened the door and he walks in and he's wearing my dress and a wool sweater, no shoes. And he's shaking and he's like, I was invisible. I just walked through the streets of Wuhan and I was invisible. And keep in mind, this is July in Wuhan. Wuhan feels like summer in Florida. It's really hot. It's really humid. And he was out in the streets wearing a dress with a sweater. And when he comes in, he just starts telling me about how he was invisible. And I just remember dying in that moment because I knew I had failed at protecting him, at keeping him safe. And I knew I was about to lose him forever. I guess he could see that on my face because I didn't really say anything. I think I was crying. I can't really remember, but I do remember him looking at me and saying, I need to go to the hospital, don't I? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I need to go for probably a while, don't I? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, it'll just be like a vacation. I'll just go and I'll get some sleep. And I was like, yeah, exactly. And so we waited for our friend to show up, his boss, to show up to take us to the hospital. And when she took us to the hospital, something happened on the way there that triggered him back into his God mode. And he started panicking about the fact that we were trying to take him to the hospital because he believed that if we took him to the hospital, 
his powers would get taken away and that we were trying to make him human. And unfortunately, I was a trigger for him. So as we got to the hospital and we were sitting down, Laura left me with him and she ran up to the desk to check him in and get a doctor. At that moment, he turns to me and starts essentially threatening me and telling me how he's going to destroy me if I don't let him go and how I need to let go of his arm. And he starts like holding me really, really hard. And Laura comes over and he starts like really raising his voice. And in China, you don't do that. If you do that, it's kind of like everybody's going to turn and look. And so she's like, okay, Chloe, I think maybe you need to go because I was the one who was causing these emotional changes in him. And so I leave. And once like five minutes after I leave, I start walking back to his place. I get a phone call from her and he has escaped. He's like, he stole her glasses because he believed that when he wore glasses, he was human again. And he stole her glasses and started like running through the park that was in between where he worked in the hospital. And it ended up taking us about, again, 12 hours to get the police involved to take him to the hospital. After that happened, it was months and months and months of paperwork and dealing with the mental hospitals in China and dealing with the embassy for the country that he was from and dealing with like bringing his sister who he didn't even speak to. I had to fly his sister in from her home country to escort him back to his home country because while he was in the hospital, his visa expired, which is like automatic deportation, but he was a flight risk. So we had to bring her in order for her to escort him back, essentially. And the whole process took about, he went into the hospital in July and he did not leave the country until September. So during that time period, it was kind of my whole world of going to class, teaching class, trying to be a human while this person who I loved was in a mental hospital and some days would see me for who I was and be normal. And then some days, you know, be in this God complex personality and blame me for everything that had happened. So there's a whole lot of other stuff that obviously happened considering the amount of time that it was. But after that, I can't say that I had the happiest experience in China anymore. And so I had gone from, you know, arriving in China and feeling like, oh my God, this is my life's purpose. I was meant to be here. Everything I've ever done has led me to this moment to being devastated and feeling like this happiness that I had finally found was just completely ripped away from me. And like, again, I still felt like it was my fault somehow. So it took me years to get over that. And it took me years to even get into therapy for that because I was so convinced that since I wasn't handling it in the same way that I handled my depression in college, I was okay because I was functioning. I was working. I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was doing a good job when I came back from China and moved to Chicago. So it was like by all onlookers perspective, I was killing it. I was doing a really good job, but I had so many issues. <laughs> I remember thinking that Every person I dated was just messing with me and secretly they wanted to kill me. 
I remember not being able to trust anybody's intentions. I remember wanting desperately to find security and looking for security in places that were not secure, like getting into a relationship with an ex-boyfriend who was almost as bad as the situation that I had in China. It was a really tough time, but on the surface, it looked like I was doing well. And in terms of money during this time, while I was in China and this was going on, you know, I kind of isolated. I became a hermit because I felt like the experience that I went through was so bizarre that nobody was going to understand it. And I was so anxious all the time. And when I arrived in China, that anxiety had gone away and I'd been like, okay, I know my purpose. I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And then that was all just turned on its head because I was so traumatized by that experience. And couldn't stay. I couldn't stay in China, but I had no idea how to come back to the United States where things were so expensive. And I felt like I had no skills other than teaching. And the last thing I wanted to do was come back and teach because, you know, I couldn't teach anymore. I hated teaching after all of that. So in that time frame, I really wasn't spending a lot of money. I was really, really anxious. And I held very tight to my emergency fund because I knew like, you know, I wanted the opportunity to leave anytime I could. And I also knew that if I went back to the United States, it was gonna be expensive and I needed to prepare for that. So finally, one day when I was in China, I found out that my ex had somehow gotten back into the country and we hadn't been speaking at all. He hated me because he believed that for some reason I had caused everything. I mean, to be fair, I thought I had caused everything too. I found out he was back in the country and I told my parents about it and they were like, you need to come home because the last we knew he wanted to kill you. You're miserable there anyway, come home. So I explained what happened to my boss and my box. Oddly enough, the expat community in China is really small. So people all the way up in the second city I lived in, which was Xi'an, people up there knew about what had happened down in Wuhan. They didn't know who I was, but they knew what had happened to him. And I remember when I first arrived in Xi'an, the night I arrived in Xi'an, somebody told me this crazy story about somebody who had a paranoid schizophrenic break and believed he was God. And I had to be like, yeah, that was my ex-fiance. Yeah, I was there. I was living it for the last, well, since it happened. So anyway, I remember coming home and just resolving myself to, you know what, we're just going to find a job. We're just going to do it like everybody else does. We're just going to get into the corporate America and figure this stuff out. <laughs> and I was terrified because China had been easy from a financial perspective. Things were not expensive. I made enough money that I could afford little luxuries and I could pay my student loans and I didn't have to worry. Going to the United States was a whole other beast because things were so expensive and I didn't know what skills I had. I didn't know if any, like how I would even get a job. And so I went back to the United States to Chicago. I started interviewing everywhere I could. And about a month after I arrived in my hometown, I got a job up in Chicago and I started that journey. And it took me several years, like I said, to get into therapy. But in between when I started that job and when I went into therapy, I was working really hard to make as much money as I could. And luckily, I found a position that I excelled in. And excelling in that helped me build back my confidence, even while I wasn't addressing this past trauma that I had dealt with. But eventually in 2017, after dealing with some very, very unique anxiety and panic attacks, 
I realized something was still very wrong and I decided to get back into therapy because I didn't want to hate myself and I didn't want to hate my life. And so when I started therapy in September, 2017, I also started Clobear. Now, Clobear was not what it is now. It was not a money platform. It was not anything about that. It was a place for me to really chronicle my journey through therapy and my healing because I needed so badly and wanted so badly to have some kind of purpose and something that I loved to do. And while I had lived in China, I had had a blog called Chloe Does China and it was doing really well and it was something that I really enjoyed doing. But when I was in Chicago, I was like, well, I can't do Chloe Does China. Nobody wants to hear about that. And so one day I just decided, you know what? I like writing. I like blogging. I don't know what this is going to be. I don't know what it's going to be about. I don't know what purpose it's going to do, but I'm going to do it. And it's going to be called Chloe Bear, which is a name my mom used to call me. She still sometimes does called Chloe Bear, but obviously B-E-A-R rather than B-A-R-E. But I knew I wanted it to be Chloe Bear, B-A-R-E, because I wanted to be really bare about my experiences with therapy and, and kind of navigating this. So while this was going on, while I was going to therapy, I was a master in living above my means in my time in Chicago. So I arrived in Chicago in I want to say September 2015, and I very quickly proceeded to spend above my paycheck. It was more money than I had ever made before. I was making $42,000 a year, and previously I was making about $16,000 a year in China. Obviously, that was enough money for China, but not enough money for Chicago. But because I had been so isolated in China and so alone in China... I was so excited to be around friends that I said yes to everything, every brunch, every going out, every drinks, every dinner, every new restaurant, all of the things, new vacations and things like that. I said yes to everything. And for the first time, I got a credit card. I used the credit card to pay for these things. I just kind of YOLO'd it out for years. And every year I'd be like, you know, next year when I get a promotion, then I'll save an emergency fund. And then that never happened. It was just uh, my lifestyle would increase. I remember getting a car, brand new car two months after my first job and my salary was $42,000 a year. And the car was $20,000 as $20,000 car is a Prius C. And now looking back, I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? But you know, we all make that mistake. I feel like, But anyway, by the time I started Clobear in 2017, I had had enough with my mental health and I was willing to get help. And really that blog, Clobear, helped me stay accountable for my personal growth. Every time that I struggled with something, I would write about it and I would talk about how I wanted to improve on it. And because of that, I healed and grew really, really quickly. And In about a year from starting the blog, I started to feel pretty much better. And I realized that I needed to get out of the relationship that I was in. The relationship that I was in was not only draining emotionally, but it was also draining financially. The person I was dating at the time needed to borrow money from me constantly to fund his business. And we were both terrible with money. So I didn't even have the money. So he would use my credit cards to fund his business purchases. And because of that, I mean, we all know how credit cards work, but because of that, it raked up a lot of interest. It probably did a lot of damage to my credit score. And I just let him do it. And luckily he did pay me back including all the interest and my credit score is fine now, but 
I remember after coming back from China and when I finally started dating again, I really just wanted security. I wanted something familiar and I wanted something that I knew what I was getting myself into, which is why I got back with this ex-boyfriend. But familiar is not always secure. And I confused those pretty significantly. And because of that, I realized I could not rely on someone else to protect me and to secure my future and to make sure I was financially safe. Because I realized when that relationship ended, absolutely no one was going to care about my money and my financial future as much as I was going to care. And so when I moved out in 2018, and when I got a new job, I decided it's time for me to start paying attention to my money. Because money, not having it and not knowing how to manage it and not knowing if I was ever going to be able to retire was a huge source of my anxiety and my feeling trapped and my feeling like I would never be able to live a fulfilling life. And so in October 2018, a little over a year after I started the blog, I started sharing my budget every month. So I would just share my numbers. I'd share how much debt I was in. I'd share everything I spent my money on, how I was budgeting and how it went every single month. And every single month I'd learn something new. I changed things around. But at the time I had this goal of just becoming debt-free at all costs. I entered into the personal finance community thinking that debt freedom was the end all be all. And because of that, I started putting down $2,000 a month on my debt. So it was about $1,600 extra dollars than what I was supposed to pay, I want to say. But anyway, I did that for about two years. So until 2020. And or I guess that's like a year and a half because I didn't start until October 2018. But I just kept sharing my story and nobody listened. Nobody cared. No one read the budgeting post because my audience had been built off of sharing my relationship problems and sharing my mental health journey. And so they didn't really care about budgeting, but I started to become obsessed with it because to me, as my mental health issues solved themselves, as I healed, as I went through PTSD therapy and EMDR therapy, I started to get better and I became more and more obsessed with personal finance because it was this golden ticket to the life I wanted to live. And it didn't require me to find my dream job. It didn't require me to do anything particularly difficult. As long as I could retire early or set myself up for early retirement, I could live whatever kind of life I wanted to live. And so I was obsessed. I fell down that personal finance rabbit hole hard. And like I said, I focused really on becoming debt-free at all costs until I learned more. So in the first year and a half, almost two years of my money journey, I put about $2,000 a month on my student loan debt. And because of that, in that time from October 2018 until January 2020, I paid off about $40,000 of my student loan debt in that period of time. But the more and more I read about financial independence and financial freedom, the more I really couldn't ignore the fact that I was missing a really big part of the puzzle, which was wealth building through investing. I kind of believed that investing was just a super scary thing, that there was no way 
I could figure out an English degree and a Spanish degree. You know, I thought it was wild enough that I could figure out budgeting. But eventually I got to this point where I was like, listen, dumber people than me have figured this out. I can do this. And so in 2020, I decided, okay, this is the year I'm going to be no longer afraid of investing. This is the year where I'm finally going to see what I'm investing in. And I'm going to start learning how to manage my own investments. And I'm going to start maxing out my 401k and maxing out my Roth IRA and getting it done because I know this is important. And so that's when it all started, guys. That is when I started really investing. Before that, I was just putting in my match for my 401k and didn't know what I was invested in. In fact, the very first time that I even got my 401k, I remember going to the CEO and being like, what are you invested in? (laughs) And he showed me which funds he was invested in. He like showed me like a screenshot or something. And I did the exact same thing that he was invested in. Even though this man was like a 50 year old man who was like preparing for retirement in less than a decade. So for those of you who don't know, if you're 24, you don't want the investment portfolio of a 50 plus year old man, because you have a lot more time than he has for his retirement. But here I was probably 20 or 30% bonds at 24 years old, because I didn't know better. So I definitely made some mistakes. I remember thinking that I was picking index funds and realizing they weren't even index funds and going in and changing things and just slowly learning more and more until, you know, I became what I am today. And it wasn't until March 2021 where I started Clobear Money Coach. Clobear was still like kind of alive. I was kind of dabbling in it. I was still sharing my budgets and still occasionally posting about it on Instagram. But in 2021, I was like, I'm going to take this seriously. I am going to really, really start educating people and sharing everything that I know. I mean, I've spent a whole year studying the stock market, understanding how to invest and doing all these things. I feel like I have something to say now. And so I doubled down. I doubled down hard. And in March 2021, I changed Clobear to Clobear Money Coach. And I guess the rest is history. So in March 2021, I started this journey for Clobear Money Coach. And by May 2021, I started making $5,000 a month. And I was like, you know what? If I can make $5,000 a month for six months and I save a one-year emergency fund, I'm going to quit my job. And I did. I quit my job in October 2021. And it's been freaking phenomenal ever since. So I did that. And now I can't believe it's been a year of me doing this. And it's been over six months of me doing this full time. And it has been such a blessing to be able to teach people about money and teach people about wealth building and you know, also hold myself accountable for my own learning because there's so much to learn in personal finance. It doesn't matter if you've been doing this for two years like I have, or if you've been doing this for, you know, 18 years, there's always more to learn when it comes to personal finance. So yeah, now you're probably wondering, okay, so where are you at now? If you don't follow me on Instagram. So from October, 2018 until now, and I'm recording this on January 15th, 2022, in that time frame, I took my net worth from negative $70,000, well, to be fair, the market's not doing great right now, but to about 230000 which is a $300,000 net worth increase. 
granted, I'm pretty sure my net worth is down right now because of the market, but I want to say it's around $230,000 right now. I used to invest the minimum in my 401k just to get the match. And now I max it out. You know, I think I put in almost 20,000 last year, but I quit my job earlier. So between my solo 401k and my regular 401k, I did end up maxing it out. And this year I've already invested over $30,000, which is so wild. Like for the first five, six, seven years of my journey with a 401k, I never invested $30,000. And now six months into 2022, I've invested $30,000 by myself, not having somebody manage it for me. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to think about that. And now with how much I have invested, I'm on track to have a couple million dollars in retirement. It just kind of depends on what the return is. If it's as low as 7%, then I'm looking at, I think about 1.9 million. And if it's as high as eight or 10%, it's closer to 3 million, but it just kind of depends on what the market does. I rather prefer to like prepare for the lower end. And the good news is I'll be continuing to invest. So that number is only going to increase, hopefully. But the peace of mind I have being in this situation and having my finances together and knowing what to do with a high income. Oh, it's just priceless. It's literally the biggest relief having this freedom and knowing I don't have to rely on somebody else and knowing I could support my mom if she ever needed it. I could support my dad if he ever needed it. It's truly the best feeling in the whole entire world. And that's ultimately why I do what I do now, why I teach and why I want people to get their finances together too, because I've done the things, I've done the therapy, I've traveled the world, I've climbed the corporate ladder, I've done the things. And we'll do an episode on my income as well because I took my income from the time I arrived in Chicago, I was making $42,000 a year at the end of 2015. And by the time I left corporate America in October, 2021, just my nine to five salary was at 130,000. So it's a huge increase in such a short period of time. And then when you look at my business income, I made over $200,000 last year between my business income and my nine to five income. And this year so far, again, we're only at June, I've made over $100,000 this year. So my income journey has been pretty wild as well. So I'll definitely make sure to do an episode just on that, because I think that's really important. And I think it's something that a lot of finance creators don't talk about because they don't want to share their salary or share their money journey. But I think that that's doing their audiences a disservice because you got to understand that sometimes the reasons that people were able to make these moves so fast, it's not because, you know, they were special or super frugal. It's because they made a lot of money and they knew what to do with it. And I don't want anybody to compare themselves and think like, oh, I should be there. If you're making, you know, $50,000 a year, it's going to happen on a slower pace because you have less resources available to you. So anyway, I'll definitely be talking about that as well because I do think it's important. I'm here for salary transparency. But yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's my life. That's my life in an hour and a half. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. I hope you guys found that interesting and helpful. And I hope that gives you a little bit of perspective in terms of who I am and why I do what I do. But yeah, it's wild to go through all that. And I'm just really proud of how far I've come. When I think back to the Chloe in China who was heartbroken, and when I think back to the Chloe in Iowa City who was depressed, and the Chloe who was working in an ATM company thinking that, like, this is what my life is going to be, they would be shocked. They would be relieved. They would be like, whoa, that's sick. (laughs) 
And so I hope that gives you guys a little bit of insight, a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of hope as well, if you're in any of those scenarios that I found myself in. And it happened in a short period of time, you know? Clobear Money Coach did not even come into existence until March 2021. So here we are, a little over a year later, and I do this full time, making a crap ton of money doing it and helping a crap ton of people. So, ah. I love you guys. But anyway, I hope this is helpful. And if you guys are starting your money journey, be sure to check out the show notes down in the show notes. I've got a free money guide for you as well as a free investing class that's coming up this month. So definitely check out those links down below. But like I said, if you've made it this far, do me a huge favor and rate, review and subscribe. It helps me out a crap ton and it's totally free to you. So I truly and completely appreciate that. But yeah, I guess that's it. So thank you so much and I'll see you guys next week. 